Who knows who John Glenn is? Everybody's got time. John Glenn. John Glenn, first American to orbit the Earth in space. Still, was a senator for the state of Ohio. Oldest man to go back up into space because he's a PC god. Before all of that, he was a fucking Marine. An air winger, though. A pilot. <laughs> right, Captain Smith? Right. How's that camera? Get the fuck away from me. <laughs> John Glenn, 1974, ran for a Senate against a, against a politician named Howard Metzenbaum. Howard Metzenbaum was a sorry motherfucker. John Glenn, at this point, was a Marine. First American to orbit the Earth in space. Howard Metzenbaum asked him, how can you run for Senate when you never held a job? What the fuck would you do if somebody said that shit to you? <laughs> now I'm going to change a little bit of this. I can. It's my world. John Glenn said, is that right? I served 23 years in the United States Marine Corps. I fought for two wars. I flew 149 missions. My plane was hit by an aircraft fire on 12 different occasions. I was in the space program. It wasn't my job. It was my life that was on the line. And this wasn't a nine-to-five job where I could take time off to take the daily cash receipts to the bank. I asked you to come with me as I went the other day to a veteran's hospital. And you stand there. You look at those men with their mangled bodies. You look them in the eye and tell them that they never held a job. You come with me and visit any gold star mother. You look her in the eye and tell her her son never held a job. You come with me to the space program and visit the widows and the orphans of Ed White, Gus Grissom, and Roger Chase. And you look those kids in the eye and tell them that their dads never held a job. You come with me on this Memorial Day weekend coming up to Arlington National Cemetery where I got more friends than I'd like to remember. And you stand there. You watch those waving flags. You think about this nation and you tell me that those people never held a job. Fuck! I'll tell you, Howard Messabaugh, you should be on your knees every day of your life thanking God that there are some men who have held a job. And they required a dedication to purpose, a love of country, and a dedication to duty that was more important than life itself. Their self-sacrifice is what made this country fucking possible. Welcome to the Global Recon Podcast. I'm your host, John Hendricks. I'm on with my co-host, uh, Chantel Taylor, former British Army combat medic. Chantel, how's it going? Hey, how's it going, John? It's good. I had a, a good conversation with uh, Pete Perry. Uh, Pete is a former Marine Raider. Uh, and Pete was there for the inception of uh, MARSOC, the Marine Special Operations Command. And he so he went through that entire transition from the first reconnaissance uh, battalions into uh, Marsac and what is now known as the Marine Raiders. Um, so it, it's interesting, you know, the, uh, the Marsac community has only been around for about 11 years now. Um, and they are the Marine component to SOCOM, the Special Operations Command. So, you know, there was growing pains and, and kind of, I guess these, these kind of things are what new units experience, uh, especially during a time of war. Yeah, definitely. Yes. And they also have, because because they have such um, 
you know, they have such a history. You can, and you're always going to have the old and bold that, and, and rightly so, you know, they stick with the stuff that they know and then sort of developing through and then, and then you'll ha- have new guys that join when it's brand new and they kind of, yeah, they, they would have essentially, I suppose, teething problems. But then having, having said that, it's a, it's a busy time. So right. that wouldn't have lasted that long. And then you're straight out, you know, into the, into the shit with everyone else. So. Right. Well, that's one thing he talked about, uh, you know, in regards to, I, I asked him a question about, you know, did things change after the first rotation as Marsoc Marines? And he said, you know, some things change in terms of the, the training of like those core uh, special operations uh, skill sets. But he felt like they kind of figured it out on a team level. But some of the issues were kind of higher up in the uh, the, high, the chain of command yeah. with, you know, some of the leadership uh, doing things kind of the old way and not being used to this kind of new style of, of uh, doing things, you know? Yeah. And again, it's just taking, um, I suppose it's that everyone goes through those sorts of stages. Cause I think he, if I remember rightly, didn't he come in after Fallujah? So he had to kind of face, yeah. you've got those guys who have been smashed and, you know, and basically I don't, we use the, the term bloodied, but Fallujah was, that was a huge um, battle. So coming, even coming in on the back of something like that, it's always going to be tough. But again, with the the rate of um, combat deployments, you know, people, it doesn't take long before, you, before you're the old sweat, you know, before you're the one that's sort of seeing the new guys coming. So, right. Yeah. yeah. So kind oh, no, of, cool. I'm looking forward to listening to that. Yeah, it was good. It was good. And, and Pete's doing, and, he's, and he's obviously got the new show and everything. Right. He's doing a bunch of things, uh, you know, like, I guess, you know, once he retired, he immediately transitioned into doing work in the defense sector. And, and now he yeah. got that show coming out. So it, it should be pretty good. Yeah, no, cool. I look forward to that. Yeah. And um, and most people know by now uh, there was a terrorist attack in uh, Manchester yep. over on your side of the world. Um mm. 22 people were confirmed dead and I think 50 yeah. wounded uh, with more, you know, people who are in, you know, on life support and that kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, definitely. So. And I think that's the, that's the terrible thing is that it's, it's horrible to say, but the number tends to rise, doesn't it? Right, When you right. have so many injured because, you know, the people fighting for their lives now, but the body can only, only do so much in particular with this type of, um, these type of injuries. Right and and blast injuries are, are a pretty serious thing and um you know I'm, I'm I know you've dealt with some of that uh, yeah. during your operational service um yeah sure and and that's the thing like people don't realize it I think they just think even when you see um guys that have, are, are missing a limb or missing something if if they've been involved in a, a blast injury they're going to have a lot of injuries you know it doesn't just sort of unless it's an EFP it doesn't it's not like a clean cut. And then they go through so many different stages. So you've got the, the primary injuries, which is like the, I don't want to talk too technically, but like the overpressure. So you have any anywhere that's kind of hollows affected. So ears, eardrums go in. And I know these sound like people think, oh, eardrums, that's such a, that's a hideous injury to deal with. And, and especially if, if you still need to remain combat effective, because you can just imagine now both eardrums, you know, that they're gone. So, and that that's before you've even faced anything, um, that we, we we would then necessarily see as, you know, um, life threatening. Just do you see right. what I'm saying? People would just think, oh, your ears, it's all good. But no, that's not good at all. 
um, and then you'd look at um, the, the sort of hollow organs that you have. So that's that's if you're kind of close. That's the primary injuries you're going to have, and that's generally for if you're fairly close to a blast. Then you've got the secondary injuries, which are projectiles, fragmentation injuries, and all the sort of problems that they um, that they can cause. And then then you're looking at things like, in particular, sort of um, fragmentation wounds. If we've got quite large cavities in the body, and if you if you're going to be bleeding into them. So and this kind of builds up quite quite a severe picture. So you, and then even moving on from there, you've got the tertiary injuries, which is where you get you get thrown against an object. So if you imagine, even in like a normal sort of road traffic collision, you've got the different collisions. You know, we all kind of know about that. But in a blast injury, you've got sort of add add to that as well. Add to to the, the kind of injuries that you're going to see. It's a, they are really bad to deal with, and it's almost. Um, uh, you know, for example, you know, a friend of mine, Stu, he he lost one leg, but he also had eleven other significant injuries. So you you know, you're looking at that. That's what you have to deal with. So as a medic, yeah. And again, I hate to say this, but it's never usually just one person. In, in a blast look, situation. Yeah, exactly. So you know, so you look at then this like hideous situation where you've got um the guy i think you know he ex- he detonated in the the foyer where people were waiting for their kids or you know and that's um and it like made a real mess so and and unless and this is another thing unless you're kind of trained for that sort of stuff that's not that's not a scene that you can just wh- whip into and think and feel comfortable with and fortunately i think you know, there are even like homeless guys and stuff helping i'm not saying that just because they're homeless they wouldn't help but I think it was a real, a real sort of sign of, um, I don't know, people like just doing what they, doing what was right and getting stuck in, and, right. and more often than not, yeah, doing the basics, especially medically, doing the basics well, they would have saved lives. You know, so even down to the point of, I think one of the homeless lads I was listening to on the news today had said that he, um, him and another guy were just holding a, a woman's legs up because she must have been bleeding from somewhere. But whatever motion they did, I think it created some form of tourniquet effect. He didn't say exactly where she was bleeding from, but he said if they hadn't have done that, she would have bled out. So, you know, I just thought that was if 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 there was anything positive that that people did um, get amongst it and help. Right, and and some of that uh, goes back to people having awareness and and yeah. having some of the skills. Uh, yeah, that definitely. Are, you know, fall under the kind of T triple C guidelines. Yeah, and, uh, I think and people get a bit scared of, oh, we shouldn't have to know that. Well, that's great that we shouldn't, you know. And it it kind of pisses me off because it's it's almost like a an easy cop out. Is a no, you know, we're not going to let people win, so we're not going to we're not going to learn that. Well, to me, that's just a bit naive in this day and age because regardless of you could be pleasing any everyone, someone will still be displeased. Right. You, know, you could do all, all the right things in life, and there's still there's still going to be an asshole. There's still right. going to be someone who's having a bad day. So, to learn those skills, and, and in particular, you know, if anything, if any of the sort of um, conflicts that we've been involved in, you know, along with the the US and stuff, we have come on leaps and bounds medically. So I think it's a good, um, you know, it's, we, that needs to be shared. And if it if it involves you potentially going to do a, a one day course to learn the very basics and you know why not get on board right and and it's just something you know if if you have these skills you know you've never been in the military you didn't work as a first responder if you have these skills and you know you go to work every day and you have a book bag with you and you keep 
uh, you know, a small medical kit or, or yeah. at the very least a tourniquet in your bag, you you become an asset to the community. <coughs> you know, if something yeah, happens, even know, with an, a, a road traffic accident, you know, right. a kid gets run over. You know what? What would you rather? Or you came across something and someone's impaled on, you know, just by just an, a, an accident. You know, I'd rather I'd rather have the skills to do something than just stand and watch right. like somebody die. You know, that's, I think that's tougher to deal with than when having remember, like attempted to help. I saw this video. I think it was in Iran, if I'm not mistaken, and and this guy, I think he robbed a bank or a store or something like that, and there was a. a the people in the area were kind of keeping him from leaving. Like there was yeah. like a crowd and they were kind of blocking him off and he was trying to escape. And a police officer showed up and he ended up sh- uh, shooting him in the leg. And, you know, when you hear, you know, in the U.S. there's a big debate about, you know, are cops too aggressive and whatever. And and then sometimes like on social media, on some of these Post, or, you know, debating about if there's a cop right, right, was he wrong? You'll see people say things like, "Oh, well, you didn't have, they didn't have to kill him; they could just shoot him in the leg or something, right?" So this cop shoots this guy in the leg, and he's bleeding out, and he's actually dying. But you know, no one yeah. there has any medical training, so it wasn't until the guy was like on his last breath that some some dude comes with a belt and ties the belt right above the wound to, to stop yeah. the uh, you know the the blood flow. And it's just, you know, it's just that kind of thing is just an example. Simple, of yeah. A just, simple little thing. Right. And, and it's also, it just goes to show that the, how much people lack understanding of these matters, yeah. you know. And that's not, you know, if you've got like a major bleed on a limb, they're probably the, the easiest bleeds to stop, you know, because you've got places you can, I mean, it is very basic anatomy and physiology and you've got very, you've got, there's only so many th- ways you can stop that bleed. You know, it's, right. it's just what I'm saying. And you've got places you can put things that make it easy. It's, it's when you've got problems on the trunk, you know, when you've got problems where you can't apply a, a improvised tourniquet and, it, and it, that makes it more problematic. And then again, um, like with, with these injuries, you, you can then also get, um, which is you've got, so say, um, the initial injury, the, you know, the secondary and then the tertiary. And then you've also got the injuries potentially of falling objects, from the you know i mean it, it just right. is it's a quite a, it's a difficult um a difficult scene to deal with i'd say i'd say probably out of all of them you know blast scene is is not great is it but again if you get the basics right you can't really go far wrong because that's all you can do right right and um you know yeah. it's this situation uh is I guess it's still developing, you know, the yeah. security services are going on raids and I think they uh they arrested the the bomber's brother and I I think I read something where they arrested his father as well in Libya. Yeah, that was in Libya. Yeah. And that I mean we can like talk about that. It's, it's basically and obviously we've got the military personnel on um in sort of strategic areas now that just of of importance. But I don't think that that's a bad thing and I I'd, I'd actually like to see um, a task force set up that like a unit that does that because I think if you had that because of all of like the military's experience in conflict zones it's very it's far easier for us to ping someone who looks you know we have that that very f- quite a famous phrase of absence of the normal presence of the abnormal so if we're looking at someone you know generally if someone's about to blow themselves up they don't act normal because right. you know, it's not a, it's not a normal function in life is it even if you're even if you're drug crazed, you're still there's still little telltale signs, and I think it wouldn't hurt to have 
again, just like we pass on our medical knowledge, that knowledge is is you know extremely important to pass on also. So who knows? This that could make it you know this um, troops on the streets. Um, there's potential for having something a bit more permanent. I don't mean obviously patrolling the streets. I just mean in particular the capital. You know, that, that, I don't think that's a bad thing to have a task force. That that's their job. Right, and because then they, they, right. yeah, they could work alongside the police, and then it, again, it's you know, it's assisting the police in what they have to do because you can't you can't sort of watch everywhere. You know, it's just quite it's a it's a big old task, isn't it? Right, you can't defend every single yeah. attack, but uh, you know, and then it's also kind of interesting because this guy had traveled to Libya before. Yeah, uh, you know he he did this, and it just makes you wonder. What, no, you know, why are and people going to these places and yeah. allowed to come back and not get questioned? You know, what are you doing? And, and in that, Libya, that's you know? exactly because there's nothing, especially in places that are at the moment, you know, completely unstable. And Libya is unstable. Syria, clearly that's unstable. So if you are traveling to those places and you're not checked in, you know, you're not contracted, you're not doing something that's um, kind of that you're allowed to do, then I don't see the problem in being questioned when you get back. That is not, that is not an infringement on, on anyone's liberties. That's no. common sense. So sometimes, and as you, you know, you, I would never sort of blame our security services because a lot of the time their hands are tied, but right, I right. do think that it's a strange thing to when, when I hear these numbers and I'm not one to, unless I kind of know things factually, but you, I hear numbers about how many people have returned from having fought, in Syria now that they've come home it's like that's that's crazy yeah it's troubling and and, and think, it, yeah that's fucking nuts but it's it's also true what you say you know like you know we're not you know who knows what they're doing and you know the information yeah. they have and and I'm sure in in some cases their their hands are tied uh by yeah. some of these laws and and uh you know things like that but again it's just it is a little troubling you know there's there's yeah. westerners traveling to these places and these and aren't for what purpose? Yeah, yeah, these aren't vacation spots. Like you, you're not going diving no. off the fucking coast of Syria, you know? Like it's no, like, you're not. Well, you're not, John. <laughs> yeah, I, I gotta cancel my fucking trip. <laughs> no, um, <but laughs> and it is. It's, it's yeah. It's something that certainly needs to be addressed. And and at the t- obviously in the, at the moment in the UK, it's just gone from everything was crazy with um, the election to now. Um, obviously, this has happened. And then yeah, I don't know what. We're living in a strange time, aren't we? Because, and this is again another interesting thing. Is I wasn't shocked. I didn't, and I didn't feel like because I was up quite late um, doing something else on on my Facebook page, and and then I seen the sort of newsreels, and I wasn't shocked. I, I didn't sit there and think, oh, you know, I was obviously a. I felt angry and felt those emotions, but I, there was no shock in me. I didn't feel any. Like oh my god, I can't believe this is happening because it's, it's you know it's almost one of those things that it's it's not um, if it's going to happen, it's when, isn't it? Right, exactly. So that's that's how we we are now. That's it's almost um, Europe's been hit quite a lot, and I, and I think we've been we've been very lucky, and most of that's been down to the way our security services have been able to track and and deal with people. But I remember he's no longer the head of MI6, but the the former head of MI6. And he he hit the nail on the head by saying, you know, they have to get lucky once we get lucky every time. You know, so that's, it's almost that, that, that guy slipped through the net and then um, caused mayhem. 
Right, and, and it's, it's, it's a, it is an enemy that isn't wearing a uniform, so it's a different yeah. fight. Uh, it's different, and, isn't it? Yeah, and, and you can't, like you said, you can't stop everybody. Uh, you no. know, you hope that you can, for the most part, stop it. And I, I think for the most part, they do. Yeah. Um, but, you know, once in a while, someone is going to slip through the cracks. Yeah. And I think it's just the reality of the enemy that, uh, you know, we face. And, you know, it, people uh, yeah, react, you know, to these things. And uh, a lot of some of the more conservative uh, types from America, UK, or whatever, uh, you know, they say, oh, you know, close the borders and, and that kind of thing. And, and it's just, it's hard to say what the solution would yeah. be, you know. Well, yeah, because this kid was born in Manchester. So right. in some ways, you know, it's almost like uh, close the borders. Well, they're already here. Right. The enemies are generally, they're all, you know, if this is, it's one, like you said, it's extremely hard to fight. But I do think that kid was born in Manchester, but he did travel certain places. And, and a, by all accounts, he was flying an ISIS flag out of his window. You know, it's, I mean that's I crazy. Like, if, it's like, come on, yeah. I'm walking down the street and I see an ISIS flag. Yeah, I'd report window. it, that, yeah. and, and we all we all have a responsibility. This isn't just down to police, security services, military. Everyone has a responsibility, and it's, it's more often than not, it's always very easy to just say, "Oh well." It's like with um, we've been going through this outrage of grooming gangs, and it's disgusting what the stuff that's been going on. You know, we had a program that was recently aired in in the UK. And over 1,400 youngsters have, you know, been systematically abused at the hands of grooming gangs that are, I think, they're predominantly from Pakistani origins. So, yeah. but again, those the kids that were being abused were already um, they were quite vulnerable young adults or young kids. So they're already not wanting to be in their homes and therefore have found their ways or way into the clutches. And what's worse is that these kids. They go voluntarily because they're already in sort of shit state, and then they just, and you know what happens then? You know, if you've got a vulnerable kid, it's it's easy. For, it's, they're far easier to be manipulated. Right, and you can but, um, kind of more yeah, exactly. Yeah. But that, my point is, is that it's, it's, you know, I sometimes drive down in, in streets where I live, and I, you know, I, I do keep an eye out and think if I see something weird, then it, it takes you two minutes to report it, and it might be you know, a bit boring or you feel like, um, you know, you don't want to do it, but you should. Yeah. Cause you that you just don't. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And you should, you know, it's, it is down to us all to, you know, sort of muck in, but, um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what's going to, what the ramifications are of this. I'm sure it will go through the normal process of people are angry, emotional, and then, but we need to have, I think, some changes in things you know i think that's gonna it's coming to a head where there needs to be for instance the this bit about he he traveled back from libya that needs to not go unnoticed right you know and i do think that all that all it could have taken was potentially as he crosses the border back in why have you been to libya and what was your business there and then a quick check on this guy you know who i don't i think that things like that need to change and and I don't think I don't think it's us being PC. I think it's actually there's laws, there's certain laws that have come from the say the European Court of Human Rights. You know that we're kind of we've got our hands tied a little bit here, and they, it needs well, to right. change. Well, right. That that's the issue is that you know there are laws. You know, yeah. the U.S. Constitution uh, over in the UK yeah, exactly. as well. It's like you have human rights, and there are certain rights that that you shouldn't have violated, but yeah. in some situations, I think we need to say, Hey, 
you know, yeah, there needs the, to be the something. Enemy is, yeah, is using that against us, and yeah, they aren't fighting us, you know, overtly. They're no. fighting us covertly, and 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 they're using our own system and and laws and constitution yeah. against and us. And it's clever. It's very it's, clever. It's very like clever. They, yeah. It's very clever. And it's it it's the only way you can fight the West. You can't yeah. fight any other way because you would just lose. And yeah, you would lose. And there are there's well documented um, conversations that people have had with you know high ranking terrorists who were caught, like uh, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. He was the the mastermind of the nine eleven attacks, yeah. and he was. You know, he was doing all kind of stuff prior to 9-11, you know, all around the world in the Philippines, uh, in Afghanistan, yeah, setting active. up things, right, you know, funding this or whatever, you know, yeah. setting up training camps and... Buying a new Lamborghini and, you know, yeah. mid-month. <laughs> it's true, though, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, they, they had, he was handing a lot of money and yeah. they... Um, you know, they interrogated him, you know, very successfully, you know, some of the information uh, that he gave up led to captures of, of high level terrorists and yeah. and whatever. So one of the things he ended up saying is that we're not gonna fight the West. We're not gonna win on the battlefield per se, but the way we are gonna win is we're gonna immigrate to your countries. We're going to uh you know go yeah. go through that process, you know, get elected uh, yeah, it's a long game. It's a long game. And and he said yeah. eventually, you know, the laws that you guys have and the you know, people who are going to stand up and say, you know, human rights, this and constitution, that uh, it's going to work against you. And, and yeah. in some ways we're seeing that happen. So, yeah, so it's like unfolding. Right. And I, t- I remember um, it's, it's, it's so. Um, and, and, and again, with all of the the way that co- I see conversations unfolding on social media, like people are at each other, each other's throats because and, and we're almost now blinded by our own thoughts. You know, so I'll see. Uh, like an argument develop and you can see that no one's so they could someone could write like a whole statement on trying to um, justify what they're saying and then the next person will come back will not have read what they've said and just come out with their own version of that and it goes on and on and it's just like hang on and it's it's almost like you're just seeing people cut and paste now from textbooks I think well but the reality is is I'm not even sure that a lot of people are getting um, ground truth no. You know, and and you see, like all of a sudden, we've got these experts in field from their war room in their lounges. Yeah, it's like, well, hang on, have you ever actually even been stepped foot outside of your fucking house? Yeah, and and, and, I, it, and it's, it drives me insane. Yeah, and another thing I was I saw a lot of, uh, and and some organizations kind of pointed this out was after the attack, like all these kind of fake stories about it were popping up, like, you know, yeah. on social media, like, oh, you know, my son was killed, da 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 and like all this fake stuff. Yeah. And it, it turned out to be fake because they, you know, they located the original pictures and, you know. Yeah, how crazy is that? Yeah, and, you know, I don't want to sound like, you know, a fucking conspiracy theorist, but. But I, who's doing that? Yeah. I, yeah, I wonder if it's not a foreign government, you know, just trying to cause yeah. chaos, you know what I mean? Hey, um, we all watched Homeland, didn't yeah, we? Exa- exactly. <laughs> and I mean, Homeland was like, yo, this I love shit is Homeland, going down. Like, yeah. <laughs> and he's, yeah, I've got, just talking about that, that, that was a really, I think that was the best season. I know some, some of it's far-fetched, but it keeps me, I'm just gutted about Quinn. Oh, yeah, when I, when I saw that, because I like to wait and, and let the episodes yeah. build up so I could binge watch. And yeah, was, when I saw that, I was like, "No fucking way, man!" This this guy oh, was no like, Quinn. "Yeah, yeah." 
but it was just, it was just eerily close to what's going on in the world. It, honestly, so how, do, how do they know? It's weird how Homeland <laughs> does that. Like, it's weird. No, it's messed up. But it's yeah, it's really good. And I know, like I say, it's not. It's it's a little bit far fetched, but it's it's pretty cool. Yeah, it's quite sharply done. I like I like um, it keeps you thinking, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, it's good stuff. It's all good yeah. stuff. But we'll see. Um, yeah, so let's let's hope that we get some. I don't know. Something positive comes out of it, so there's some sort of change that we can let's let's respond by doing something that it's, it's like another step to negating the next attack. So if it is a case of if you travel to you know have a list of countries. If you travel to these countries and there's no and it doesn't matter what religion you are. You you know you, if if you as an individual go to this country and your explanation is not satisfactory, you know you, you're going to be open to further questioning. Yeah. Or at least, you know, or or potentially, I mean, even looking at things like having an, another task force that's just employed to watch people. Or do you, do you see what I'm saying? So, right. so you know, you have because you have really highly skilled people, and I, I don't want to sound like um, derogatory. I'd probably put myself into the bracket of I don't mind watching people because I'm not an MI6 agent. That MI6 agent needs to be somewhere doing their important shit. So right. the stuff that they potentially don't want to be doing could be done by someone who is less qualified but but still obviously has that role and i think i don't know maybe that's what's needed you know to have a, yeah. a new role to help to kind of like like support officers if that makes sense right right yeah yeah i, I think Can me so. creating a job for myself almost yeah uh, maybe go. i <laughs> maybe mi6 is gonna show up at your house and go hey uh... no, yeah probably not for that <laughs> But um, yeah, so it, it's I don't know. There's, I, I hope I'd like to think that we can do put something in place that's just going to help or make it harder for the next attack. Because unfortunately, I don't. Unfortunately, there will be another one. Whether it's you know that's the nature of what what we're fighting. Right, and it's just you know keep your head yeah. on, a, on a swivel. You know, just got to keep. We've got to keep keep on keeping on. You know, and and just you know, I hope I hope the the people that you know that fell you know didn't suffer so much and you just got to hope that people can kind of find a way through you know it's because i think again with all the way social media goes is we tend to forget that there's someone that's like grieving you know because because we want to sort of get our, our, our opinions across and, right. and, and rightly as, as we do but again then there's someone sat at home right now in shit state because they've just lost their kid their mum. you know right Right. Yeah. Some, sometimes you know. Yeah. But um, I, I see uh, they're a little bit up in arms because of the New York Times. Did you see that? I seen that tonight. What? With reference, I think they um, printed leaked pictures of forensic stuff from the bombing site. Oh yeah. Oh no, I didn't see yeah. that. Yeah. Well, there you go, John. Have a look at that. Can we we'll chat about that next time? Yeah, Americans love leaking <laughs> shit. Yeah, let's just leak it. Leak it out there. <laughs> <laughs> but um yeah so we look forward to hearing from pete now yeah absolutely all right cool so with that being said now i'll play the conversation that i had with pete perry welcome to the global week on podcast i'm your host john Hendricks. i am on with uh former marine raider pete perry pete what's up brother not too much man thanks for having me john i'm pumped how are you i'm good man uh just working 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 nonstop, man how about you same, same, dude. It's uh, every day is a hustle, and just getting excited to, for this TV show, and just 
I'm, I'm excited to be here. So thank you again for having me. Yeah, so talking about the TV show, we're, we're definitely going to talk about that, um, I guess, later on. And, but let's like let's start from the beginning, Pete. And sure. uh, let's talk about what what kind of motivated you to join the military. And then if we could kind of, you know, go through some of those details from uh, early on. Yeah, absolutely. So I joined the Marine Corps in July of 2003. Uh, prior to that, I was not your typical kind of A student. I was more your kind of... D's and F student, really big into skateboarding, punk rock. Uh, and I just knew that college really wasn't for me. I knew had I gone at that time, I would have wasted a lot of money and a lot of time. Uh, my dad was a fighter pilot in the Air Force, uh, so I was very familiar with the military lifestyle. And just after talking to both my parents, like, hey, man, uh, maybe college isn't for you yet. Uh, how about you look into the military? So initially, I looked into the Air Force, um, sat down. I wanted to be a PJ. Uh, you know, I worked through the whole thing with the Air Force recruiter uh, and a little bit through all the way up actually until MEPS. I was really excited about it, but something was kind of off about the recruiter, um, which actually turned me off for the Air Force. So I actually left MEPS in the middle of in processing, went home. The Air Force recruiter called my house phone. Hey, Pete, what are you doing? I thought you were in, man. I'm like, ah, not for me, man. I'm done. Hung up the phone. My hand's still on the house phone. Phone rings. Hello, hey, this is Sergeant So and So, United States Marine Corps. Have you ever thought about joining the military? And I'm like, uh, as a matter of fact, I have. And he's like, he's like, oh, sure, man. And I'm like, no, I'm serious. Like, I'm I'm super into joining the military. And he's like, all right, what's your address? I'll be right over. Like an hour and a half later, dude showed up to my house, full dress blues, um, and we, we you know we talked through the whole thing. And then at that point in 2002, my dad was actually uh, in Saudi Arabia sitting in some bunker during the initial part of Afghanistan for planning and coordination. So we had to send over waivers to him since I was 17 at the time. Uh, he signed that. We got everything back. And then um, that was summer of 2002. And then I went into boot camp July of 2003. Um, and that's how it all started, man. Awesome. So, okay, so you joined uh, very fairly young then. Um, yeah. So yep. you kind of grew up in the, in the Marine Corps. Yeah, definitely. So uh, I was 18 years old when I went to boot camp, uh, and I've learned a lot since then. And ha- you know, you definitely grow up really, really, really quick in the military. Right. So you, so Afghanistan was was underway as you joined, and obviously there was a a bit of a difference in how uh, things run in the military during peacetime versus during wartime. I'm going to I'm going to imagine that in wartime things move a lot faster. What initially as you signed up what was your your job and your specialty? Sure. So when I initially joined, I had the plan of like, hey, I'll go serve my country. I'll do 4 years and then I'm going to get out. So I wanted a profession or a skill set in the Marine Corps that would translate into the civilian marketplace. So my recruiter duped me like most of them do and said, "Hey, uh, you know, you could be a radio operator. You could be a satellite communications specialist and get out and go get a good job for like AT&T or Sprint. And I'm, you know, I'm 18. I'm like, well, well, that sounds cool. Sign me up, sign me up, dude. Um, so went to boot camp, finished that. And then I went to Marine combat training and then I went to comm school. And as I'm leaving, uh, Marine combat training, they're like, all right, you know, 0621 Perry, which is Marine Corps. You're a field radio operator. And I'm like, whoa, hold on, big Sarge. I'm doing satellite communications. I'm going to go work for AT&T. 
And he's like, the fuck you are, man. <laughs> Get on this bus. You're going to 29 Palms. And I be, I started its uh, field radio operator course, Frock. And the day that I got there, I was like, oh, man, I made the worst mistake ever. Uh, and it's nothing against radio operators, but it just wasn't what I thought that the Marine Corps was going to be. Um, it was just a it was a big time wake up call. And at that point, I was I wasn't desperate to find something new. And I actually remember a gunny from Second Force Reconnaissance came out. He gave a quick speech on recon and they talked about what it was. And then I actually missed the in-dock while at comm school. I actually blew it off to go skateboard with me and a really good friend of mine. And then I came back from a snowboarding trip, walking out of the snowboard, and there was one of the instructors. His name was Corporal Trey Hardinger. Uh, Trey saw me walk with a snowboard. We started shooting the shit. And then he had jump wings. And I'm like, hey, man, what are, uh, what are those jump wings about? So he tells me, he's like, yeah, he was like, so he was a radio operator with third recon battalion. So he tells me like what reconnaissance Marines do. And I was like, oh man, I missed this in doc. I totally fucked up. I missed the best shot in the world to get away from this job. Uh, as luck should have it, there were four slots from my graduating class that, to go to third recon battalion. Uh, Trey hooked it up and I actually got orders. A third recon battalion showed up in March, 2004 I was in the comm shop for all like a week, week and a half in like the regular Marine Corps. Uh, and then I took the indoc there uh, to become a reconnaissance Marine. So, yeah, I was in the Marine Corps for probably about a week, week and a half, took the indoc. And that next week I checked into Alpha Company, 3rd Reconnaissance Battalion. And is there, there's a uh, selection process to get into the recon, right? A little bit. So you'll take an initial screener. Um, when I started, when I was coming up, it was just like a day long event prior, I guess the previous generation, you're talking like a day two or longer type of, a you know, in doc indoctrination event. Uh, so mine was, it's kind of like a modified physical fitness test. There's some swimming, there's some rucking. Um, so I made that. And then while you're waiting to go to, so you're, uh, you go to rip, so you become what's called a roper. It's more of an affectionate type term as a you're a recon marine awaiting training, uh, essentially. So I was a roper from March of '04 until the end of June of '04, and then I checked into basic reconnaissance course in Coronado, California, in uh, July of 2004. And and for the audience, I mean, a, a lot of the audience is is somewhat familiar with. Uh, some of these units, like the reconnaissance Marines. And so what exactly is it that the reconnaissance Marines do? Is it like a kind of like advanced infantry uh, style unit? So I would say it's a, uh, yeah, you're pretty spot on. It's a, it's a pretty light infantry unit with a jump and dive insert capabilities, sniper capabilities. Uh, they're really the eyes and ears for the Marine Corps. Uh, and that's going to be the reconnaissance, battalion reconnaissance and force reconnaissance companies. Right. And, and just as kind of my question to you, I was always, always kind of curious about this. What is the difference between uh, the two uh, different kind of recon, uh, like the force reconnaissance and battalion? Sure. So uh, the reconnaissance battalion will traditionally work for the MEF or the MU. Um, and then that's where you've got the force reconnaissance units are generally uh, more senior guys. So they're guys that have been reconnaissance Marine for a few years. They've usually done a couple deployments. And I actually remember going from 3rd Recon Battalion to 1st Force Reconnaissance Company. I was already a Recon Marine uh, and then still taking an indoc to, to go to a platoon. So it, okay. there's, it's kind of like it's, it was kind of the next step up. So, Right, okay. 
Okay, so, and then, you know, you, throughout your career, you, you became a Marine Raider. Um, you know, there's some historical, uh, there's some history behind the name uh, Marine Raider that dates back to uh, World War II. But uh, the Marine Raiders stood up during the middle of this kind of global war on terror. And uh, I think they just recently made, like, what, uh, 11 years or so, 12 years uh, as a unit? Yep. Yes. So it was actually really cool. Um, I'm super fortunate. Right place, right time. I was actually at First Force Recon Company. Uh, we were in 4th Platoon, and we were up in Hawthorne, Nevada. Uh, we are going through a, a light weapons package, some, some mobility, so we're driving around up in the mountains in the desert. Uh, and we were on our way back. And it was just a really kind of informal thing of like, hey, you guys are uh, in MARSOC now. The Marine Corps is finally in U.S. SOCOM, because, which was a pretty big surprise to us because not too long before that, they had disbanded uh, Det 1 or Detachment 1. So, and that was kind of the, the trial group of guys. So, again, very senior force reconnaissance Marines uh, pulled into Det 1. They did a tremendous job and really laid the framework. But it was, it was one of those things where, um, you know, Donald Rumsfeld at the time, you know, again, the way it's trickled down to us didn't really give the Marine Corps too much of a decision. They're like, hey, this, this, you know, the GWAT's not going anywhere. You guys need to pony up some guys and get into US SOCOM. So it was, it was re- a really unique time to, to, to be around. Right. And, and SOCOM is the Special Operations Command. But yep. up until uh, MARSOC was stood up, uh, the Marine Corps didn't have a, a component in SOCOM. That's correct. Yep, that's correct. So you had the Force Recon, even the Muse, the Marine Expeditionary Units would kind of advertise that they were, you know, uh, SOC capable. Um, but no one, you know, no one in the Marine Corps was a no kidding SOCOM detachment. So it was a really, really big uh, time for us in the Marine Corps. Right. And so all of the the first uh, units that were comp- that made up MARSOC, who were now in, a part of SOCOM, all came from the reconnaissance uh, battalions, right? That is, yep, 100% correct. So they took and disbanded 1st and 2nd Force Recon Company, and, and they stood up 1st and 2nd. At the time, was Marine Special Operations Battalions. Now it's 1st uh, and 2nd and 3rd uh, Raider Battalions, and we'll cover that more later on. But, um, <clears throat> yeah, it was a really, really unique time to be around. That was 2006. Um, so at that point, you know, our... You know, we were still training to go to Iraq at that point um, as MARSOC stood up. And then you had the East Coast Company, the first East Coast Company is Fox Company. They were in Afghanistan. They were doing great things. Um, and then pretty much some bad PR ended up getting them uh, booted out of country, of which now everything's been exonerated. Those guys are totally innocent. They did the right thing. Uh, you guys can actually look it up. So it's the Fox Company uh, 2006 incident in uh, Afghanistan. Um, which again had, you know, some pretty big lasting effects on us on the West coast. Uh, for example, our pre-deployment speech from the component commander at the time, <laughs> no kidding. Uh, he and his entourage walked into our, into our training space and said, Hey, you guys fuck this up. It's going away. Don't fuck this up. And then he walked out and we're like, all right, man, uh, no, no pressure no there. Pressure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Don't fuck this up. I'm like, all right, cool. So so you did you go on a deployment before you joined Marsoc or no? I did, yeah. So when I was with Third Recon Battalion, I went to uh, Fallujah, Iraq, from March until October of '05. 
Um, so we were actually in Zidon. So it's a little bit out of Fallujah proper and, you know, spent a long time there. It wasn't kinetic at all. I think we got in one, like, you know, two minute gunfight, if that. Uh, we actually spent the majority of the time kind of doing presence patrols, counter IED, um, you know, cache sweeps. We were we were a glorified line platoon. When I say line, we were like a glorified infantry platoon. Uh, we were doing probably three or four foot patrols a day per team. Uh, and then we would do a raid at night and just for, you know, nine months, man, just nonstop. And that was right after the, the big battle of Fallujah? It was. It was. So it was, you know, during that workup cycle prior to us getting there, you know, everyone's watching the news and you're, everyone's just getting really excited, kind of frothing at the mouth for this, this massive, you know, gunfights that we're going to get into. And it's going to be this really kinetic environment. And we got there and it wasn't, man. And it was it was really disappointing at the time. You know, I remember thinking just like and you go out, you know, fortunately, I've always had really good leadership and you always go out, you know, like you treat every mission like it's your first. And, you know, that way, you know, to kind of avoid that complacency. But, man, every single time we're like, all right, maybe it's going to happen today. Maybe it's going to happen today. And it just never came for that entire deployment. It just never happened. Right. And it's 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 probably so weird for you guys, uh, especially right after that humongous fight. And then, I mean, I think it was probably just that area for you guys, right? Because I think the rest of the of Iraq was pretty kinetic at the time. A little bit. It was starting to ramp up. Um, depending on where you were, it was definitely ramping up. So I know we were there, I believe, if my brain serves me correct, that was right. We were kind of in between, you know, Big Fallujah and Big Ramadi. Okay. And right around that time, you know, it, for us, it just wasn't, it wasn't kinetic. Right, because it went from Fallujah to Ramadi, right? Is that how it kind of... Yep, yeah. So I think they did. It was two big pushes into Fallujah, and then it was into Ramadi. Yeah, and then Ramadi kind of had elements from the Army, Marines, and I believe Naval Special Warfare was there, uh, you know, kind of made famous by Chris Kyle and, and, you know, some of the things that they were doing over there uh, at that time. Um, Yep. So, so after you, it was after you returned from your first rotation, and that's when you went into Marsoc, right? Yeah, that's correct. So the the timeline would be um, came back from uh, came back from Fallujah in two, uh, October of '05, and then I checked into First Force uh, in I think it was probably February of 2006, and then we were just like I said, we were going through our workup or through our pre-deployment training cycle, and then. Uh, we got a phone call. Hey, you guys are in U.S. SOCOM. You guys are MARSOC, Marine Special Operations Command. Uh, so the rest of our workup, we had trained to go to Iraq. Uh, for most of us, you know, that would have been my second time there. And most of the guys in the platoon, that would have been second, third, um, probably one guy, maybe fourth time going back uh, during that time. So. And did that change anything in, in regards to how the training was, was happening? You know, when they called up and said, hey, you guys are now in MARSOC, did that change some of the training for you guys, like your workup? No, not at the time. Uh, I mean, we were the, the force reconnaissance companies set, you know, super high standards, whether shooting, patrolling, jumping, diving, whatever those guys are doing, they're going to do uh, at a very comparable level to other soft units within U.S. SOCOM. So there wasn't really too much uh, to go on at that time, you know, and... 
I'll get into it in later on deployments. You know, there was a lot that we didn't know at that time. Um, so in terms of we kind of looked at it, hey, we're going to go to Iraq. We'll be more of like a direct action, uh, you know, hard knock type force. And then, you know, we're getting ready to deploy. We ended up going to the Philippines for about a 45 day uh, J set. So we were out there training some of the Philippine Marines, uh, getting ready to go to Iraq. And then uh, probably a couple weeks out, hey, we're switching. We're going to go to Afghanistan. And we'll just, you know, more to follow. So we got on a plane, flew out of the Philippines, and then we landed in Kandahar uh, in spring of 2007. Okay, and you guys, you you got to Kandahar and, you know, start running operations, or did you guys have to bounce around a little bit? No, so we got there, and it was still one of those things where, you know, to the, the special operations task force, like, Hey, cool. We have these guys, you know, and then it was like, how are we going to employ these guys? Um, so we probably spent the first maybe two weeks in country, you know, we're putting our vehicles together. We're getting all of our weapons, getting everything ready. You know, we're training day in, day out, getting ready to go out and start conducting missions. Uh, we'd probably been there in Kandahar for about two, three weeks. And then we got orders to go to Fob Price, uh, right in vicinity of Goresh. So we took Highway 1 going west. Uh, so we left Kandahar, drove in the middle of the night, um, and got out to Fob Price, where we set up our Fob. And then same thing there. We you know, we started to build our camp at that point. And there was already a 7th group team there. And then there's a pretty large British footprint there as well. 7th uh, Special Forces, like Army Green Berets, you mean? Yep. Yeah. Yep. So at that at that time in Marsoc's history, we needed to have adult supervision. So, <laughs> so you know, it's one of those things where uh, we actually split our elements. So their senior element of their team would go out with, I guess, the more junior element of our team, and then vice versa. Hmm. Um, so you know, our first mission, uh, we were we were actually in the middle of training, and we got a phone call that there was a, an Army Special Forces team was in contact. I think they had one USKIA and maybe another wounded. Uh, and we were to go be their quick reaction force, their QRF. And this was a massively eye-opening experience just to really see like how you know vast this country was and how far away people really were when things went bad. I think it took us maybe two and a half, three hours to drive there to get to those guys. And by the time we got there, uh, I was pretty much done and over with. But that was a big time eye-opener of just, oh, man, if things get weird here, you're you're pretty much on your own. Right. And, and you guys were were driving there. That's why it took so long. Yep. Yep. Correct. Right. And, and the thing in Afghanistan, I guess, is a unique place in the, in the regards that it's, I think, I believe it's the most, um, heavily mined, uh, country on the planet, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, so you got like the, the legacy mines left by the Russians and then yep. you have all the IEDs, uh, left by the Taliban and, and the other, uh, groups that are out there fighting, um, so just driving around there is a is a risk in itself. Yeah, it's super sketchy. Uh, I know during that 2007 deployment, we lost a handful of trucks. Uh, you know, we were hitting old Russian legacy anti tank mines. Um, you know, those the Taliban are they're they're smart, man. Uh, a lot of guys will kind of talk shit that oh they they live in a cave, man. They don't know what they're doing. Uh, I'll be the first one to tell you that a handful of those guys really know what's going on, and they're actually pretty formidable opponents. I mean, there's been a handful of times where we've been duking it out, and you actually see them run the same tactics that you were taught and trained on on you, and you're like, oh, shit, this is this is going to be an interesting day. So, Yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm glad the, you brought that up because I was actually having a conversation with some friends of mine, and we were talking about uh, things like that, you know, 
Uh, you know, how hard is it? You know, like there was a uh, that terrorist attack last night in uh, Manchester. And yeah. And someone made a comment like, oh, it's, you know, it's not that hard to, uh, you know, strap a bomb to your chest or whatever. You know, it takes balls, but it's not hard to do it. I'm like, these dudes are smart. Like, they're not like, uh, you know, you think these guys are just like cavemen or whatever. I mean, these dudes have been fighting for a long time. And and what I said was, is I know, you know, a lot of guys, you know, like yourself, how you just said, like, who say, yeah, these dudes are not... Uh, you know, just somebody you can just write off. Like they, they know what they're doing, you know? And, and yeah. a lot of people seem to have that misconception. Uh, like you see it a lot on social media and stuff like that. So I was just, I'm glad you brought it up. Oh yeah, man. I mean, don't get me wrong. You definitely have that low hanging fruit. The guy that's just, you know, right. he's your super little, low little henchman. He's going to go out and just do kind of menial tasks. He'll probably be the first guy to get smoked. Right. Um, but dude, don't get me wrong. There are some guys that are, that are doing some really, uh, pretty gnarly, things out there so and that we learned that in 2007 so i mean we did that qrf got back and that was like i said i mean eye-opener for sure and then after that we were pretty much just a really big glorified infantry platoon uh we would go out half of at the time we were called the dasher platoon the direct action surveillance reconnaissance platoon so we were about a 50 man plus up uh, platoon we just split in half so my half would go out with the senior half of the oda so we'd go out with their team commander um, and a handful of their guys, we'd probably leave the, the fob in about four to six gun trucks. And we would just, we'd pick a village. Hey, this is our, our, our village of interest. We have a compound or two that we want to check out. Uh, and no shit, as we would be driving up, you know, they would immediately start to report on us. Um, so we would use different, uh, tactics. So we would actually put different color flags on some of the antennas of the trucks. And then we could listen to their radio. So they'd be like, Hey, we're going to shoot a rocket at the truck with a red flag. And you're like, oh, shit, that's my truck. Oh, okay. shit. Oh, shit. All right, brace yourself, man. It's coming. And then sure shit, you know, a couple seconds later, RPG would come screaming overhead. And you're like, all right, they can definitely see this. Um, and we were just doing move into contact. That, that's all it was for that majority of that deployment. You know, we'd, we'd pick a village, pick a town, Kaligaz, Hyderabad, uh, Regay, Kajaki, Musakalay. And we would just drive down there and we would spend two to five to 10 days down there just fighting all day long. And it was kind of funny. And we would joke like the old Bugs Bunny cartoons where you've got, you know, the wolf and the sheep. And at a certain point, like the whistle blows and they take a lunch break. Yeah. It was, it was kind of like that on some of the hotter days, you'd be fighting, fighting, fighting. And it would just kind of die down. And you're like, huh, it's kind of weird. And then we'd back off in the desert, take off kit, drink food, redistribute ammo, call on resupplies. And then sure shit, you know, we'd start taking indirect fire. We'd start taking mortars or rockets. And then that was the whistle, boop, you know, clock back in and then just keep fighting all day. Right. So, and that's, that's how that entire deployment went. And it was really good. It was really cool to kind of see, you know, yeah, granted we're really far away from everybody, but the air power that we had was phenomenal. I mean, we were running uh, AC-130 Spectre gunships dry regularly, B-1 bombers dry. And when I say running them dry, I mean... They were going home with no ordnance left, uh, and we killed. I think during that deployment, we killed it was like three hundred and forty something dudes. We had a we had a good trip. And and so a, a lot of soft units, they would have like uh, air force uh, air force guys attached to them to kind of fill that role. Uh, was that the same thing for you guys on that deployment? So on that deployment, we didn't have a specific JTAC attached to us. We had JTACs internal to us. Um, that were just regular Marine reconnaissance guys that had gone to the course uh, and been certified and had the same credentials as an Air Force uh, combat controller. 
And now, granted, they're you know we're not going through the crazy pipeline that that that, that those guys. And I don't want to take anything away from those guys. Those guys are tremendous and have a very difficult job. Um, but it's the same thing in soft. You know, it's the jack of all trades, master of none. So we had a handful of uh, actual JTACs in each team, and those guys were able to call and cast. And at that time, you know, given we didn't have crazy rules of engagement you know at that time it was just the ground force commander so whoever the senior guy on the ground whether that was a captain or a major could authorize you know whatever ordinance we wanted at the time so it was great we had great freedom of movement and a lot of autonomy and it was it was a really cool time to be there right and, and having those those type of rules of engagements uh, that allows you guys to fight freely versus what ended up kind of happening later on where the, the rules kind of restricted guys a lot and and from what I understand, uh, people were killed in, in some situations because of it, uh, or, or because you weren't, you know, you weren't allowed to take the initiative. Uh, I guess. Yeah, you know, you definitely hear those stories, and I think part of it too, um, you know, it's really nice and convenient. To, you know, you're in a gunfight just to kind of firm up and then call in a couple F-15s and drop a few 500 pounders, but at the same time, I personally think you send a much deeper psychological meaning when you actually close with and destroy your enemy at close range, you know, cause right. then the next time when their buddies come to, you know, come recover them and then you kill them. And then now their buddies are really thinking like, man, you know what, do I, do I want to do this? Right. You know? So that, that, that was kind of our, our message. You know, every deployment I ever did to Afghanistan was, you know, they have a little bit of a psychological hold on us with whether we're pressure plates or legacy mines or whatever it was, or just fighting in their backyard. Our goal was to just send that psychological terror of just killing these dudes as up close and as personal as humanly possible. Right. And that, that got to be a little demoralizing to, uh, you know, have your, your, your team for them on, on that side, having your team just dropping left and right uh, in a gunfight, you know. Oh, well, man, we'd hear it over the radios. Like, oh, it's it's the wolves. The the men, the men with beards are back. The men, you know, and then you would li- we'd listen to them on the radio. Oh, the men with beards are back. And then you could kind of hear it, you know, and there'd be other times where we would be patrolling and we, you know, again, we're monitoring what they're saying. And they're just using like regular radios that you can go buy from Radio Shack. So it's not like we're doing anything crazy. Right. Um, and you would hear guys whisper like, they're very close to me. They're on top of us. I'm so scared. I'm so scared. And the other guy would be yelling at him, shoot, shoot, shoot. And the guy just wouldn't do anything. Um, so yeah, the psychological part, it was absolutely, it, it's imperative, man. When you're fighting this type of an enemy, you know, you're fighting this guerrilla type warfare, it has to be violent. It has to be gruesome to send a message. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, um, so you, you guys came home from that, that first trip and, you know, obviously as a, a brand new special operations unit, uh, there will be a lot of changes and lessons learned and, uh, and, you know, in some cases, unfortunately, for the type of job that it is, a lot of lessons are learned in blood. Um, did things change for you guys after that deployment or after some other uh, teams came home from their deployments and, you know, kind of sharing lessons and that kind of thing? Absolutely, man. So we came back um, fall of 2007. Um, everybody took probably, you know, 20, 30 days vacation, came back to work. And they sat us in a conference room and said, hey, you guys are an alpha company. We're going to stand up Delta Company, first MSOB. Um, who wants to go on a deployment? So I think everybody but like one or two guys raised their hands. And those guys had prior commitments. Uh, one was going to go be a sniper school instructor. And I think the other guy was getting out. And they're like, all right, everybody with their hands raised. You guys are now in Delta Company. And we're like, all right, well, that was easy. Um, so we started our work up again. And this is where it got really cool. This is where 
the a lot of the the core soft skills we started to learn and you know again kind of being the new guys on the blocks you know and we went on that first deployment in 2007 of hey we're the new guys we're the new kids in town dude we'll wash windows just put us just put us in the fight coach and we'll fucking work right and i and i think that worked out really well so then during this time you know we proved ourselves marsoc you know hey we're good we're going to stick around for at least another couple more deployments um so then this is where the, our, everyone's eyes were really opened of like, oh, man, there, there's some really cool things out there that we're now able to do that we now have certain authorities to do that you don't have in battalion or force reconnaissance units. So we started to work on a lot of that stuff, the core soft, I guess, you know, more specialized training. And then we went back on another deployment, 2009. Uh, we went to Fob Robinson in Sangin. Um, well, actually, sorry, let me back up. We first we went to Camp Delaram, my team. So it was uh, MSOT 8142. We were hanging out at Fob Delaram, um, doing our thing. And then the night before our first mission, we got a phone call. Hey, guys, stand down. Um, an Army SF team has had a couple casualties. We're going to reroute you guys to Fob Rob. So pack a bag. You guys will probably only be there for about two or three weeks. And then we'll bring you back to Delaram. And then your deployment will continue from there. So we packed everything up. And then a lot of us, knowing that that Sangin area from the previous deployment in 2007, we were really excited. We knew it was going to be highly kinetic and a really fun trip. So we packed up our bags, threw them in our trucks, and we drove from Delaram out to Fob Robinson right there in Sangin. Um, and like I said, we'd packed enough. I think everybody had – everyone was allowed two bags. So we'd had packed for a couple of weeks. Um, and then that, that, that'll come in handy here in a little bit by the end of this story with that. So um, – and saying, man, that was, it's definitely the Wild West out there. You're very, very much alone and isolated. There was a British cop uh, just north of us, Fob No Lay, or Cop No Lay. So, and that, and that was it, man, for Sangin. And you, you worked with the Brits at all, or were you just kind of based around them at, at certain times? We were just based around them, just south of them at Fob Rob. More mutually supporting elements. If they were going to do something and they needed some kind of coverage or blockage, we would we would provide that and then... They would also help support us. And then we would also try and get some of our supplies up on a lot of their supply convoys. Um, and every time, I think we did that two or three times. And every single time, I mean, those convoys were just ambushed and just decimated uh, to the point where we had thought one of our supply clerks had put our remaining bags. So again, hey, guys, go to Fob Rob for two or three weeks, pack two bags. And now we've been there for a couple months. Hey, let's you know send out all of our stuff. So we had thought the supply clerk packed everything, and then there was one giant shipping container that was just a burning pile of rubble at this point. And we had thought that, oh man, all of our shit was burned on this on this convoy, and we just lost all of our stuff. Oh, wow. um, so, <clears throat> and then because at that point, I mean, we were getting mail maybe like once a month, once every like five to six weeks, um, just because it was it was an extremely kinetic environment. Uh, I think on average for the entire time we were at Fob Rob, I think we got attacked every other day. You know, they were killing, they had killed a couple of our guards. So it was always, you know, you'd go out and fight and run around and then you'd come back and then you were still very much on guard. And you are anyway, you know what I mean? You're, you're in Afghanistan. Um, you've got host nation workers walking around. So you're still kind of iffy. And then you have your partner nation force, right. uh, not, not too far from where you're living. So you're still on guard a lot, but you know, there was no room for complacency. I mean, we had snipers shooting and killing our guards. So it was, it was an interesting deployment for sure. Right. And at that time you guys were already working with, uh, Afghan military or. 
Yeah. So at that time we were working with, you know, stand up Afghan national army guys. I think we had a group of about 30 to 50 guys, depending on what was going on. And at that time it was actually pretty, pretty relaxed. You know, we would only have to take out five of them, uh, every mission. Uh, and I was one of the primary mentors or trainers for those guys. So that's where it's kind of cool, you know, being a young soft operator, you know, you're in charge of basically your own little army from everything from food to housing to weapons to training to and then being responsible for them on a very kinetic battlefield. So it's pretty unique uh, experiences for sure. And was this one of the the aspects that was new to you guys uh, as uh, as Mossack Marines? Not not too much more of the, you know, being responsible for every, you know, every little bit about these guys that was the newer part okay. um when we you know when we were in iraq we'd have you know i think five to seven guys that would come out with us and they wanted nothing to do with it they would just sit in their truck and we'd go run around and do stuff so these guys actually wanted to fight for the most part and uh they're actually you know they weren't too bad okay yeah yeah so it's and i i guess you know like you said the you after you came back from that first trip uh, some of the the core soft component training you guys are able to go through, and um, you know, I, I guess specifically like for Army Special Forces, that's kind of one of their specialties. It's like working with host nation forces and that kind of thing, you know. Yeah, absolutely, and that's where during that deployment, a lot of the stuff that we had learned during that that pre-deployment workup training cycle, we were now able to put into work, and it was it was really cool to see all that stuff come to fruition and see, you know, hey, there's a reason that we're doing this, and there's a reason that this stuff works. So that was really really cool. And if anything, all it does is if if done properly, increases your lethality. You're killing more bad dudes if those core soft skills are done properly. So and then that just reinforces all of your training. So right, and I think uh, one of the kind of benefits for you know, standing up a, a soft unit. I mean, even though you you guys came from units where you guys had those soft skills, you know, in, in terms of shooting and patrolling and everything like that. Um, but one of the benefits I'm I'm gonna guess is that there are all these other very experienced units around you guys where you can kind of borrow from and and take some of the lessons that they learned and and apply it to uh you know to you guys and your deployments and and whatnot. Yeah, absolutely. At the team level, we were definitely doing that. Um, during that initial kind of couple of years of MARSOC, it was, you know, the big excuse was, oh, it's a new unit, it's a new organization, it's growing pains. The problem that we would run into at the team level, and this isn't a bad thing, or it's not a slight against anybody, it was kind of a bad thing, to be honest, was at the team level, we were light years ahead of the entire headquarters component and everybody above us. It was one of those things, you know what I mean? It was one of those things where like at the team level, like, oh, hey, there's a reason that, you know, um, the SEALs do this. There's a reason the Green Braves are doing this. There's a reason other units are doing certain things. Let's pick all the good things that they're doing and then let's make it work, work for us in our own way and go forward. The problem we would have is with the higher ups and the component at the time, they were just still stuck very much in that conventional Marine Corps mindset. And it, it was it was pretty painful for, for a lot of years. And then now... You know, now you've got a guy that was a team commander 10 years ago is now a colonel and he's now in charge. You know, so that that's awesome. And that is part of the whole growing pains. But where our frustration was, where our frustration really came in is you could look at the Green Berets like, hey, man, here's a great here's a great blueprint. This is what works. Let's take that. You know, they've already done all the hard work, but we were kind of reinventing the wheel there for a little bit. And it was it was brutal, man. 
Right. And I, I can imagine that that's, that's uh, somewhat difficult because, you know, you have all these kind of old school Marines uh, who grew up in, in the Marine Corps and, you know, spent their entire careers doing things a certain way. And then, you know, the, that, that soft way of doing things is a bit different. And I, I, you know, I didn't really think about it until you mentioned it, but that makes a lot of sense. And I can imagine that there was some frustration on, on that level. Um, but, uh, you know, it's, it's just interesting to see the, the kind of level of growth. I know I remember reading an article maybe last year and, uh, the article was talking about, or maybe it was like a year and a half ago, something like that, how, uh, officers from MARSOC were, you know, leading the, uh, the JSOC component, uh, over in the Middle East for a little bit. I don't remember if it was in Iraq or what, but, uh, I remember people were kind of sharing it on social media, you know, Marines or whatever. And it was kind of looked at as, uh, you know, just kind of a, a sign that shows the, the growth that the, the command has undergone, uh, in that short period of time. Oh, dude, absolutely. And if it wasn't for Afghanistan, if it wasn't for the GWAT, there would be no MARSOC. Uh, and Afghanistan definitely put us out into the forefront. I think the Marine Corps and MARSOC proved like, hey, man, we are a formidable unit. Um, put us in and you will get results. And that that's a guarantee, man. So, uh, you know, and going back to the Marine Corps thing, the harder part, too, when we stood up and even around that 2009, 2010 time frame, you know, for the longest time and you know, is there's no elite within the elite. Uh, and that was one of the main reasons, you know, that the Marine Corps never went to US SOCOM to begin with. It was, well, the Marine Corps is already elite. We don't need to belong to another subcomponent. Um, and I always kind of joke, you know, there was a guy next to me at boot camp that peed his pants every single night. And I'm like, man, if, if that dude's a Marine and that dude's elite, then <laughs> all right, <laughs> whatever you guys say, man. And, that, and that's not to take anything away from the Marine Corps. I think the Marine Corps as a whole does does a tremendous job, especially the infantrymen. The Marine Corps rifleman has the hardest job. Anybody in that 03 community has the hardest job, hands down, in the Marine Corps. Um, so uh, hats off to the infantrymen in the Marine Corps. Right, right. Uh, okay, so Pete, so after your second deployment, um, well, so how many deployments do you have total? So I did four. So one to Iraq and then three to the Helmand. Okay. Okay. So, and after each rotation, were things still changing or did you guys kind of settle into your, your pace? I think, it, I think a lot of it became more routine, but I mean, just to remain relevant and to remain a really lethal force, things are constantly evolving. So, I mean, you're constantly in touch with the teams that are overseas and you're implementing that most up-to-date, you know, tactic or procedure into your training real time, you know, whereas, you know, 15, 20 years ago, it was, Hey, this is the way we train and this is why where now it constantly evolves. So you still have your same core skill sets, your same core tasks, but in terms of like employment or some of the TTPs, you know, your that stuff evolves rapidly. Right, right, absolutely. And um, so, throughout your entire time uh, as a Marine Raider, uh, was your specialty still as a radio operator? No. So my first trip, I was a driver and the radio operator, and then uh, after that, I was an assistant element leader and then an element leader. Um, so at that point, you know, you, you, it's. Marsoc, it's it's the whole jack of all, jack of all trades, master of none. Um, so you're anything, you know, from an assaulter to doing intel to being a sniper to being a JTAC. 
and everything in between. Um, so yeah, I was, I wasn't a fan of being a radio operator. I just, I just did not like it. Um, yeah, not, not a fun job. It's a very, yeah, not a fun job. Right. And, and I, I'm also going to imagine that, uh, as a radio operator, you guys are carrying a lot of shit. Yeah. I mean, everyone's carrying a lot of stuff and right. don't get me wrong. Um, it was one of those things where, you know, as your primary responsibility for being a radio operator, it's hugely important. You're the lifelink to that team. You're the lifelink right. for a medevac, uh, for CAS, whatever it is. It's just, you know, there are other specialties that I wanted to get into that interested me more than, you know, carrying radios. And dude, in this day and age, every soft guy is probably carrying two radios. You right, know what I mean? Right, so it's, way, it's right, yeah. yeah. So it's super important to be able to understand it, but it just came down to more of like the backside support of being a radio operator that I just wasn't hugely keen on. Right. Okay. So Pete, you have, uh, you have a bit of like an interesting deployment story. Um, <laughs> can, as a Marsoc Marine, yeah. Uh, can you tell that story? I mean, you have a bunch of different stories, but this one specific, uh, that was kind of interesting. We talked about it. Yeah, absolutely. So this was my 2012 deployment. Uh, so we had the 7th Commandos, 7th Kandak uh, for the Hellman. Super kinetic mission. Really fun deployment. Uh, excuse me. We got there October 1st of 11, and we left Excuse me, June 6th, uh, 2012. Uh, so during that time, we were flying out with the 160th. Uh, my team did 31 uh, helo inserts. I was a part of 30 of them. And it was a blast, man. Every time we were going out, we were fighting our brains out. Uh, it was a really good time. Uh, so the story that you're referring to, <laughs> um, we were actually, you know, it was a company clearing operation. So we had a handful of MSOTs, uh, Marine Special Operations teams. And then we had an Army Special Forces team. I think it was with 3rd Kandak uh, from out from Western Afghanistan. So we had a lot of boots on the ground. Um, so during this time, we had cleared the ops box for this particular push. It was probably about 2K, two kilometers east to west, and maybe seven, eight K north to south. Um, so during this time, I think my element alone found a hundred pressure plates in the ground. So as you can imagine, I mean, and that was the other really gnarly thing being in Afghanistan from 07 up to 2012. I mean, it went from legacy anti-tank mines to very like a high metal signature, um, improvised explosive to a low or no metal signature pressure plate, which that just makes everything all the more interesting. Um, so for this particular uh, mission we'd inserted, um, did our normal business that first night. And then the first full day cycle, we were there, we fought all day, not a big deal. And then that second night I needed to move about two kilometers. Um, so we, we walked pretty far, got into our box or I'm sorry, got into our compound. And again, you're navigating at night in a highly, extremely highly IED area. So it's pretty nerve wracking. Uh, I walked point man. I was the number one dude, uh, for every mission on deployment, except for my first one. Uh, and then that gets into the whole tactics and everything on it. So um, we walked pretty far that second night, got to a compound of interest, uh, at which time we had one of our Afghans step on a pressure plate. Um, I was severely concussed. A good buddy of mine was also severely concussed as a result of that. We were actually standing on the rooftop directly looking over the doorway when he activated that that pressure plate. So that hurt for a little bit. Had a good headache for a couple of days. Um, so that's the second night of a nine-day mission, um, and that's the other part of like being a soft, um, 
being a member of soft is just because you have a bad day doesn't mean that the mission's over doesn't mean that you can tap out and leave you know you're there until you can't fight anymore and that's the bottom line right so uh you know so the one dude died we had another guy get wounded we medevaced them and then we walked another kilometer through again extremely highly saturated ied territory get to a compound probably go to sleep for about two hours and i wake up to radio chatter coming in from the taliban uh hey we're moving on their compound we're going to go ahead and attack them so at that point i grab myself three other us and probably a force of about 15 afghan commandos uh we got about 150 meters out of the compound and we're ambushed and then from that point we fought all day long it was it was a really good fight we ended up moving about another two kilometers straight line distance so you're just running back and forth just i mean imagine if you just threw like a piece of piece of spaghetti on on a map just bloop, and then that's kind of like what our route looked like that day um got to a compound and I'm looking at my GPS and I'm like, oh shit, man, we are really overextended. You know, now the enemy can have freedom of movement between these two elements. This is not good. We're just going to hold up here until nightfall. We'll keep this territory and I'll bring the rest of my guys up at nightfall. So I breach a wall. We get everybody in the compound. We clear the compound and we had a British Apache overhead. Uh, and he's just kind of reporting, just giving us atmospherics. We'd probably been in this compound for about 15, 20 minutes. Uh, most of us had taken our gear off. Uh, we're filling up water. We're reconsolidating uh, ammunition. I had, I think, two guys up on the roof, two of the Afghan machine gunners up on the roof in the prone, and they're just, you know, conducting surveillance. They're looking for dudes. And my Air Force CCT calls me over and he says, Hey, Pete, this Apache's saying there's a dude like 100 meters out of your compound. I'm like, No fucking way, man. I just blew this wall down. We've been fighting all day. All right, cool. They're probably probing. So I put on my Peltors, I uh, have my carbine. And then I walk over to the door and I'm looking and I'm like, holy shit, there's a fucking dude. All right. No big deal. I'm like, I'm going to let him get a little bit closer. So he's walking north to south. He's in open, uh, open farm fields and he's walking towards us. Uh, my buddy comes up and we're looking at it. We're looking at this guy. And I'm like, hey, once he gets in this alleyway, we'll let him get like 10 meters into the alleyway. We'll open the door and then we'll dump him. The reason I wanted to let him get into the alleyway is he could only run north. He couldn't kind of zigzag or get out of my field of view, and it would just make it a little bit easier for us to dump this dude. So we're hanging out. We're getting ready to engage this guy, and my interpreter comes walking up, and the guy sees him through the, the crack in the door and sees him, turns around, takes off running. So I go chasing out after this dude. So I have Peltors and a carbine with a full magazine, and that's it. Same loadout, Peltors and a carbine with a full magazine. We get out there, we're chasing the guy. Now we've PID'd his AK-47. We see him. Uh, we start shooting at him, shooting at him. He falls uh, in a field probably about 50 feet away from us. So can I get into an L-shape? So I'm running directly towards this dude because now I'm moving north up the same ditch that this guy used, ch chasing after this guy. Now, meanwhile, this British Apache is reporting all of this on a, it's a company clearing ops. There's a lot of ears listening to this. So in my, my best British accent, it's, you know, Roy, I see one male. He appears to have a gun. He appears to have a weapon. Oh, wait, there's three men. Oh, they're shooting at him. One has a very large X on his back. So the X, the X is my suspenders on my dumb ass. So, and all of this, you know, this is all unbeknownst to us. So this guy's, you know, I'm, I'm getting ready to engage and, my CCT is calling him off. Hey, wave off friendlies. Um, so now we're on the ground. The 
the crop at this time was probably about thigh high. So I actually lose visual on this dude. So I'm walking up, walking up, and I regain visual probably about 15 feet away. And as soon as I see him, he sees me, and he's on his back and just full auto with his AK. Just right at me. And I remember looking through my L-can, walking forward and just shooting him in the chest. I'm like, oh, fuck, this is really going to hurt. So I just keep walking forward, just keep shooting this dude in the chest. My buddy is shooting him in the chest. And then I hear kill out of ammo. So then I button hooked around and the guy's still going. Uh, the bad dude's still going. So I just button hooked around and shot him in the face probably six or seven times, which again, immediately just incapacitates him. So I take a knee and I look at him and I'm like, Hey man, let's get a picture of this guy with his loadout because we're, we're going to get hit. So there's a picture somewhere floating around, you know, on the hard drives that we had overseas that I'm sure have all been destroyed by now. Um, <laughs> of me taking a knee down to this just like hunk of meat at this point. Um, and then the very next picture is us pinned down in a ditch. So we're now under really accurate medium machine gun fire from the North from probably about 200 meters away. And I remember looking at it and just be like, Oh, this, this sucks. All right. Well, we'll be fine. So reach over on top of the dead dude. Or <clears throat> I crawl over to the dead dude. I grab his AK. I reach into his chest rig, grab a fresh source of ammo, load the AK, and then I start putting rounds into the darker spots where I think the machine gun fire is coming from. All of a sudden, this tree line, like 30 meters north of us, just erupts. And we're laying there, we're like, holy shit, what the hell is that? And then it stops, and we're like, man, like we didn't know what it was at the time. So I get back up, start taking some more shots. At this time, another really good buddy of mine jumps off of the roof. He's watching all this. He's got a scar heavy. He comes running up to assist us, so he's putting rounds on where we think this machine gun fire is coming from. And the whole time, this British Apache is just wanting to just shoot us. You know, I'm not sure what to do. They're engaging one another. I'm not sure what to do. Um, luckily, so what ended up we ended up finding out later on, obviously, that the trees erupting was the Apache doing gun runs. Uh, so it clicked after the second one we're laying in the prone and as i'm like pancaked to the earth i look up and i'm like oh it's the helicopter okay cool on the next one we're gonna bound back so on the third gun run from the apache we ended up bounding back get back to the compound and i'm just covered in this dude's like blood and gore and i'll never my commandos i'll never forget it we're just looking at me like holy shit (laughs) commander pete holy shit you know i'm smiling ear to ear you've got adrenaline just just maxed out you know what i mean You're like holy shit that worked i lived that was that was wild right um so yeah it was a it was a pretty interesting story we ended up finding the next afternoon moving a little further north we found the machine gun bunker so it was about a two foot thick mud wall and then behind that was another probably six to eight inches of concrete as a concrete reinforced bunker inside of this compound and that's where we were taking the medium machine gun fire from the day prior when we were out in the open. So, so they were pretty squared away with that setup, right? Absolutely, man. And that goes back to what you and I were talking about earlier in the conversation. Not all these guys are a bunch of cave dwelling, you know, Neanderthals. Some of these guys yeah. know what's up. So it was a, uh, it was a good, it was a good time for sure. And was that your last rotation? Yeah, that was. So I came back summer of 2012, uh, back to first Raider battalion. And then at that point, uh, I volunteered to go be an instructor um, you know, so I have a, a young family. I wanted to spend some time with them. So I ended up going out to the, the schoolhouse, uh, from 2013 until 2015. And then I, I got out of the Marine Corps. Okay. So what was the total time that you were in the Marine Corps? 12 years. 
Okay, awesome. Awesome. And then, so the now it's known that you guys are Marine Raiders. Uh, when did that change take place? Um, probably, I think, two years ago at this point. But it was one of those things where when we stood up back in 2006, a handful of the guys from that first West Coast platoon actually went and sat down with living Raiders from World War II and said, hey, guys, this is who we are. This is what's going on. We would be honored to carry on the name um, Marine Raider. And of course, these guys, they were all for it. They're like, they were flattered. Um, so at that oh, point, yeah, I can imagine, yeah. yeah, and it's a huge, it's a very humbling experience, you know, to get the blessing from those guys. Um, so at that point on, every guy in that first West Coast platoon wore a Raider patch, wore a Marine Raider patch. Uh, and then so we just we had been doing it since we stood up in 2006. Okay. The Marine Corps didn't officially recognize it until just a couple of years ago. And again, it's hugely proud. And there's only a few of those guys still alive from World War Two. Right. And they're they're the proudest guys on, on planet Earth that were able to carry on the tradition and, and continue to do great things just as those guys did. Right. And, and they fought uh, mostly in the Pacific or, or they were kind of everywhere. Generally in the Pacific, and that's where uh, one of the first questions I often get are what are the five stars, and that's the, the Southern Cross constellation that is very near and dear to the 1st Marine Division, and then as well as the Raider units in the, the South Pacific in World War Two. Yeah, I mean, th- that was some really heavy fighting. Um, you know, oh, I couldn't, I couldn't even imagine, man. I mean, yeah. you think about it now, you know, people are having a hard time now going overseas for six months, and then they come home. You know, and even when you're overseas, you know, you go to some of these bigger camps and there's a TGI Fridays and Subway and these dudes are living in the jungle for years. You know what yeah, I mean? Like so just hardcore shit like and, and, you know, war, you know, battles where, you know, 10,000 dudes are dying and it's just like like a war of attrition, you know, and all, all around. And I mean, but there, you know, there are different type of, uh, you know, challenges that each each generation of warfighters faces for their you know particular war, you know? Absolutely. Okay, so now you you've you've got out of the Marine Corps. Um, you've yep. been out for what two years now? Yeah, I got out July of 2015. Yep. Okay, so you know the, the obviously the transition is a kind of a, a very uh, important process for guys getting out, especially warfighters. And how how have you found that so far? Uh, I found it pretty good. You know, initially, like the first couple months, like you're kind of waiting to go back to your work. Because, again, I, I mean, I only did it for 12 years. Um, so I can't even imagine guys that are doing it for 20, 25 years, what that must feel like to not go back and do that. Because right. it's, it's one of those things. If you're a successful, soft guy, you know, it's not a job. It's your entire life. It's your it's your whole life be- in being. You eat, sleep, shit, breathe your job. You know what I mean? And that's where that is one thing that I definitely miss. It's the caliber of guy that you're working with. You know, for example, you know, you would get up, you would go lift weights for an hour and then you would train, you know, 12, 15, 18 hour days. And the guys were still going home and they're getting on their laptops and they're studying, or you'd go over to your buddy's house on the weekend and they'd be in full gear, you know, practicing, putting a nerve breaches on the doors of their house just to be that much faster and that much more proficient. So, and that's the caliber of guy that you're working with day in and day out in a soft organization. And it's awesome. So it's a little bit of an adjustment period going from somebody where it's like, and it's good. You know what I mean? It was a more of an adjustment period for my own brain of like, you know, you're not on the clock 24 hours a day. 
you know, so it's, you know, that, that nine to five job and that, that took a little bit of time to get into, but I was fortunate. I work for Opscore now, you know, and that's the same helmet that I wore when I was in. So being in the defense industry is really nice and it's definitely helpful. And then now in my current role, I mean, I still go down to Camp Pendleton to First Raider and I see, you know, all my old buddies and it's, hey man, how can I help you guys? What do you need? So it's, it, it's, I'm in a very good, uh, good place and I'm super lucky to have to work, to work where I work and be able to still go down and kind of touch the magic as they say, you know, right. And kind of stay involved and, and, and help out in, in your own way. A hundred percent, man. Yeah. It's, it's very gratifying. Okay. And you're also, you're doing some stuff for, for television, right? Yeah. So that's actually kind of funny. Um, probably back in March. Now I was approached from a couple buddies Hey man, uh, we did this thing with this pro- this producer and their production crew, uh, Dream Quest Production. Um, they're looking for a guy. They want to do a tactical show to go on the Sportsman Channel. They're like, we can't do it. We're getting ready to go on deployment. Uh, you're out. We thought you'd be a good candidate. You should just put put your name in, man. So I submitted a resume and a and a bio, a handful of pictures, um, and just like any other job, you know, you interview. For, so there's the whole screening and selection process, and then I actually interviewed and sat down with the producer. Alan Smith, who's a super good dude, really good human being. Um, we sat down, had dinner, had some drinks, and kind of talked about my background and then where I thought I could take the show. Um, and then throughout that process, probably another five, six weeks went by. And then it was, hey, you're in the top 10, top five, top three, top two. And then, you know, I'm at my day job at Opscore and got a phone call. Hey, man, you want to host the TV show? Because you're the guy. Um, so that was, that was pretty, yeah, so that was, that was really funny. So, and I'm, I'm, I'm flattered again to have that opportunity. Okay. And, and, uh, and how many episodes is it? Like, is it a certain, uh, you know, are you guys doing like six episodes, 12 episodes? How's that working? Yeah. So we're going to do 13 episodes, 12 of which will have, you know, some really fun, hard hitting, running and gunning type content. And then we'll do one episode, probably the ninth or 10th episode where we'll do a live viewer Q and a, so again, we'll let everybody know ahead of time on our social media, on our website, uh, where you can actually go on and just ask whatever you want to know about the show, about anything, you know, weapons or techniques related or about, you know, my silly ass. <laughs> okay, awesome, man. So uh, what? So if people are interested in like kind of keeping up with the show and, and uh, anything else regarding that, uh, where can they go to do that? Yeah, so right now the best place would be my Instagram. It's going to be Peter Perry Eight. Uh, get on there. You guys can DM me, ask anything you guys want. You know, I probably get five to ten emails a day uh, asking, you know, how to become a Marine Raider, how to become a Marine, uh, different questions on, you know, gear or guns, and I love it, man. It's I love talking to everybody. It's really cool for me. Um, so <clears throat> that would be one way. Uh, and then as we get closer to the show, we'll launch a website. And then we'll launch all the social media for the show itself. Awesome. Okay, so maybe uh, when you guys get a little closer to the launch date, uh, we can get you back on. And um, and maybe and you know a lot of uh, people hit me up, you know, asking questions, you know, about you know Marines or you know sniper, you know, a bunch of different things. Maybe we sure. could, we can have you back on and and you can answer some of those questions. In a in a heartbeat, man. I, I would love to. Um, and then if I don't know it, I'll put you guys in contact with a subject matter expert on that. So yeah, I would, I would love to come on again, dude. Definitely. Awesome, man. Awesome. Well, it was great having you on, brother. Um, you know, I, I appreciate you sharing your, your story and, you know, your experiences. 
And I know the audience definitely will, and uh, especially the um, younger generation of guys who are, you know, looking to join special operations or join the Marine Corps and, you know, get into the infantry and that kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely, man. I think kind of one last thing just going into the TV show is going to be, you know, there's a lot of everyone has a platform now just with social media, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube. And there's a lot of things out there that when done, although they look cool and sexy on social media, will definitely get your ass shot off in a real gunfight. Uh, and I'm not talking like full frontal fight in the Taliban. I'm talking like a one-on-one gun gunfight with an adversary. So, you know, definitely with a TV show, it'll be using the same tactics, techniques, and procedures that I was taught and I learned and that I taught, you know, while teaching CQB and marksmanship and weapons um, that I want to teach, you know, the everyday gun owner just to make, you know, a little bit more effective and a little bit safer. Right, because there are, there are people who can shoot, uh, you know, civilians – but I, I think the the lines get a little blurred with what you know what's reality or, or what's effective in a gunfight and and kind of uh, you know and I think social media lends to some of that you know like with the with the size of the following and, and that kind of thing and and I guess you know that's one of the kind of the the negatives of social media it could kind of amplify things that aren't correct or that that shouldn't be amplified you know oh dude absolutely and don't get me wrong for everybody listening. If there's guys that are sports shooters or they're, you know, they're shooting nipsing, whatever the guys are shooting, you know, we take a lot from that and we actually implement that into combat marksmanship. The, what I'm talking about, are, you know, you have 120,000 followers doesn't make you a gunfighter, doesn't make you a subject matter expert. Um, so that's, that's kind of the one, you know, one facet of the show is, Hey, these are real TTPs that I've used in over easily over a hundred gunfights that actually work. So. Right. Right. Awesome, man. Awesome. All right, Peter. It was great having you on, brother. Yeah, dude. Absolutely. Thank you for having me on. Again, uh, go Peter Perry 8 on Instagram. Uh, you guys can shoot me a DM and I'll, we can talk all day long. So thank you, John, for having me. Um, and thank you, everybody, for tuning in and listening. I definitely appreciate it. It was great having Pete on to have a guy with his experience uh, as a Marine Raider and to have him share his experiences and kind of uh, – go through that entire process of how MARSOC, the Marine Special Operations Command, was stood up and and the journey. And it's they're a relatively new unit. So, you know, coming up during the middle of a war, uh, things happen fast and, and much faster than they would had they been stood up during uh, peacetime. So it was just cool to hear that story and, and hear some of that history and then some of the stories that Pete shared uh, during his uh, of his operational service overseas. So with that, we'll wrap up this week's podcast. Uh, check out my website at globalrecon.net. Check me out on Facebook at FB Recon. Check me out on Instagram at IG Recon. Uh, check out the other account that I have. It's Black Ops Matter. Uh, check out Chantel Taylor at mission underscore critical. Uh, her other page on Instagram is alternative RV. Uh, be sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. Uh, you can do iTunes for Apple products and SoundCloud for Android. Uh, just search Global Recon Podcast on, on iTunes or SoundCloud. You know, download the episode, share them with your friends and family. That way we can continue to remain at the top of the iTunes government and national categories and continue to provide you guys with high quality content. 
Uh, so we'll see you guys in a couple of days with another episode. Peace.